0: This is Growing Pulse Crops and I'm your host, Tim Hambridge. Today on episode eight of season three.
1: The variety choice is the easiest decision that can be made that's gonna have the biggest impact for the farmer. So variety development is really important and I can't stress it enough. Where we really, really need to go for the future is at developing varieties specifically for organic agriculture. That's something that really needs to be done.
0: Steve Zwinger joins the show to talk about variety development, intercropping, and organic pulse production. Steve is a research specialist in agronomy at the NDSU Carrington Research Extension Center. One of his primary responsibilities is research into organic, and pulse crops are an important part of a lot of these rotations. Steve has been involved in this type of research since the 1990s and works with a number of crops, including small grains, pulses, and even some work with ancient grains as well. On today's episode, you're going to hear about what he's discovering in his intercropping research, the benefits he sees in organic variety development for both organic and conventional growers, the importance of seeding rates, and much, much more. Steve has amassed a wealth of knowledge over multiple decades of doing this type of applied research. I thought a good place to start out today's episode would be to find out from Steve what made him want to start this intercropping research in the first place.
1: You know, so basically intercropping is really looked at as a practice of growing two or more crops together in the field at the same time. And basically what we're doing is we're looking for combinations of plants that will complement each other better than when they're planted alone. You know, this can lead to increased yield and increased quality. But a lot of that early work we did was in conventional. To me, as I started thinking about it now and then, now I'm working in organic agriculture, I'm thinking... You know, intercropping might have a much better fit. Not that it doesn't have a good fit in conventional, but it may be more appropriate in organic because of increased plant densities, meaning more plants out there, less weeds, and you know, not having the the, the big load of synthetic nitrogen there you know possibly growing a legume with our cereal grain could be advantageous too with the possible nitrogen fixation transfer that type of things so i thought it seemed to make sense from a number of standpoint maybe it might have a fit in organic and that's why i started looking at some of that and i think i mean i did a number of things but the op is what i'll kind of focus on now but in our earlier years we weren't able to pick up as much differences with some of that, with our intercropping. But the last few years of doing some oat pea, uh, the results have been really quite pleasing. So the agronomic benefits that we kind of looked at with, with the pea mix, oat pea mix is that, you know, the oats could provide support for the peas, meaning less lodging, and the peas could provide nitrogen. Those are the two basic things that, you know, we were looking at that. But anytime we do intercropping, there's also, because it's a relatively new, a lot of combinations in terms of varieties and seeding rates that needs to be worked out. And we don't know all the answers yet, but I think those are two primary things that you want to think about is to match up your varieties as best it can in terms of maturity and other factors and find varieties that complement each other. And then also the the densities is really important because the densities can even change with the varieties you use, where one variety might be more competitive than the other. So, you know, densities and varieties uh, selection really, really important. And so, what we were doing with the oats and peas, you know, for grain, was we 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 varied the oat densities, but kept the pea densities the same because that's what we were looking at was going for the peas and just see how much oats we could put in there for that factor.
0: And we'll talk more about densities and seeding rates a little bit later in today's episode. Uh, But for now, I want to focus on what Steve and his colleagues are learning about the benefits and trade offs of intercropping.
1: Well, we were looking at this for two, three years, and and basically what we were finding is we were always finding a positive relationship when we had them growing together. And so what we call that, basically it's called the land equivalent ratio, or LER. What that means then is, when we have an L, a land equivalent ratio above one, that means that we were able to then, with our intercropping, grow more on a specified amount of soil or land than it would take versus if we were growing these alone. And so um, basically, yeah, pretty much a positive relationship all the time when we were growing them. And we've had some land area equivalents up to as high as 1.5, meaning it would take 50% more land to actually grow the same amount that we did when we were growing them together if we were growing them separate. So again, we, we did find a lot of positive relationships that way. Now that was with yield. But, you know, there are other positive relationships. As I mentioned, lodging. If we have a, a pea variety, excuse me, that's prone to lodging, growing that with the oats made the oats, it was support for that. So it didn't lodge as much, which is made harvest much better. And then in turn, higher quality for the peas because they weren't lodged. And so we saw that. We also saw positive relationships, even with protein on the oats. Whenever peas were with the oats, the protein on the oats was significantly higher. Now, I would have to say that I can't 100% prove that, but I would think that that was because of those peas there, they were able to fix nitrogen, whether it was transferred directly to the peas or just used less nitrogen so the peas had more, or the oats, excuse me. But basically we were able to you know, increase the protein And which I think is big, you know, that's a positive right there. We also could see some test weight increases, too. Surprisingly enough, when the more oats we had with the mixture, the test weight was going up. And so once we had the high rates of oats with the peas, there was no differences in the test weight when oats was growing with the peas as compared to when oats was grown alone. So, you know, there we can see some positive attributes that that I can measure. Now, some of the milling characteristics wasn't work that was done here. But even the milling characteristics were better with the oats when it was grown at the peas, meaning, you know, growth percentages and other things. So that's a positive when we're seeing something all the ways from the field where the farmer could save some money on fertility or other factors. Then all of a sudden when it's going all the way to the end result where the, the quality was higher. So I think, you know, some of those first things that we saw were really quite positive.
0: And for those of you who might be new to the concept of intercropping, we have done some other episodes on the topic, like episode three this season, episode six of the last season, and an intercropping panel bonus episode. I'll link to all of those in the show notes so that you can go back and listen to them for more background after this one. Steve says research has shown other benefits of intercropping as well, such as disease suppression in a chickpea flax intercrop.
1: The one we'll use that's proven and probably done the most is actually chickpeas flax. And, and then that data has shown that the, the ascochyta in the chickpeas will go down once the flax there. And what's kind of interesting too, since flax isn't a competitive crop, having the chickpeas there helps with weeds. So there's a positive, positive, you know. And, and so that, that could be a possibility to lessen diseases in the lentils is having it growing as an intercrop.
0: Resilience in the face of disease pressure is definitely a reason to do further research into intercropping, but it also guides Steve's work in breeding organic varieties in general. He sees benefits of organic variety development not just for certified organic producers that need new varieties, but also for conventional farmers as well.
1: Well, obviously... It's across both types of farming, uh, conventional and organic. You know, disease resistance is very important. So that's the bottom line across all systems. But um, some of the other factors, since we're not using herbicides and we're we're relying on um, plant competitiveness – Plants that have more seedling vigor and shade quicker and the close of the rose quicker are much more important for that character. Now, that was one of the things as I've been working over the years with organic farmers in a group that you know is looking at developing varieties for organic agriculture. Some of those traits are things that we've been searching for, but it's not as easy to find as, as one would think. In particular, too, in organic agriculture. Basically, the majority of the varieties being developed are being developed in conventional agriculture, in conventional settings. And basically, what we're doing then is we're using the best varieties that perform there and taking them to organic. Now, that basically does work. There's been some earlier research that's been done. We looked at that and and basically showed that the G by E, genetics by environment, the system that when we test or develop varieties still holds true. In other words, when the best varieties rise to the top in conventional, they will also in organic. But now taking this one step further, if you would start breeding and developing from the very beginning, from the first crosses in organic, there is data that's been developed now that shows in these breeding programs that superior varieties will come forth that isn't happening a lot yet in organic where there are programs dedicated to breeding for that so again basically borrowing the best from conventional and that still holds true but again going back now if we can start selecting from the very beginning these varieties and i'll give a i'll give a little point on that and how that works Stephen jones and kevin murphy out of washington state have a dual breeding program and what, meaning dual, meaning they're breeding organic and conventional in their in their wheat breeding program. Well, what they did, and they published papers on this, they took the 10 best varieties in conventional and the 10 best varieties in organic in experimental mode and then planted them in each environment. Well, guess what happened? The 10 best in conventional still were the 10 best there, but when they moved them organic, they weren't the best the varieties that were selected and developed there were. So that just shows you if we can go that direction, we will develop more superior varieties for that type of environment. Now, the point being is this doesn't mean that we just need to develop varieties in organic for them because these same varieties will be beneficial for conventional farmers. If a variety can compete more and and maybe can have one less herbicide application or something, that's a win-win for all. So basically, when we think about what we want to develop in that environment is the same thing we want in others, but we are using different techniques, no herbicides. If herbicides are used, the varieties then that rise to the top might not be the competitive varieties because we took that edge away, if that makes sense.
0: This concept of developing varieties in an organic system is an interesting one. As we think about trying to develop more resilient varieties that can prevail in less than ideal conditions, there's a real argument to be made that more varieties should be developed this way. Steve goes further to give a great example of how this can work in practice.
1: There's a variety that we've been testing the last three years that was provided to us by one of the uh, the companies, and it comes out of Europe. And basically, when you go to their website and look at this particular variety, um, they say that this variety was developed for biofarming or organic agriculture. So in Europe, in other words, this company did develop this variety for that. Well, if I look at the last three years of our tests of the organic variety trials, it's the highest yielding variety. Two of the last three years, it was the highest yielding. So averaging all three years, it's the highest yielding variety. and so that's kind of a substantial thing showing that this one variety that was developed even though it was across the ocean that but it was developed from the beginning for organic farming and we bring it to north dakota and in three years it has the highest yield compared to all the other varieties so that shows you then that how important that development is
0: this approach can obviously be helpful for resilience when it comes to pests and disease but it also can help for something like nutrient uptake.
1: We know that there are differences in how uh, varieties can extract nutrients. Because again, when we think about our breeding program, not that it's wrong the way it's being done, it's just the, the system that we're, we're dealing with. You know, generally we try to take out most of the variables, whether it's weeds or fertility and things like that. So therefore, if these varieties are being developed in an environment of high fertility, A variety that's more efficient at extracting those nutrients won't be noticed as much in that environment, if that makes sense, the way I'm saying that. But if we can come up with varieties, particularly the small grains and other things that are more efficient at extracting nutrients, that's going to be more important too, because uh, one can't help but notice what's happening in the news now, unprecedented increases in fertilizer right now. And so those traits are going to be important for all types of agriculture.
0: Now, getting specific to pulses, Steve has been working on developing new varieties of field peas for organic agriculture. He says they're a great fit into organic rotations without having to sacrifice much of the yields found in conventional counterparts.
1: Field peas has been the main one because that really seemed to have a really good fit. And what, what we noticed in our environment here at the Carrington Research Center, it was the one crop that comes fairly close to having the same yields on the conventional side. And so, and and there are some years, uh, depending upon years, that that we actually were able to out-yield the conventional tests. Again, they're not side by side, but we're just comparing across on the farm. And so field peas has a really good fit that way. And if I think back to uh, looking at yields, if I take the last five-year average trial means of conventional and organic, we're only two bushels difference meaning organic is two bushels lower. And across most of the crops, we don't see that. And so that's what I think is a positive with peas for that. And again, peas in particular too, because, I mean, there are organic uh, nitrogen sources and phosphorus sources that can be used. But when we can take a crop such as peas that has ability to fix fairly large amounts of nitrogen in a short period of time, that really can add to that system. And and particularly with uh in our country, in North Dakota here, you know, we're still a primarily a small grain state, meaning wheat or oats. And peas really have a good complement with those crops. They really fit well. So peas has been the main one. At Carrington here, lentils, even though it's hard to talk moisture when we come out of a dry year, but where we're at, we are a little bit higher in moisture. So lentils don't do as well here as compared to when we go further west but interesting this year this is the best lentils we had a very dry year and they were right beside the peas and it was quite, quite surprising that you know our lentils yielded substantially more than our than our peas did this year in the organic environment so that shows the importance of crop diversity and then also planting crops that are adapted to your environment you know but yeah but, but peas really seem to have a good fit for us and and again, it just worked well. And so it's one of the, one of the crops I like to use in our organic rotations here at the Research Center.
0: One important point that Steve wanted to make sure we emphasized actually ties into both the intercropping and the organic varieties concepts. And that's the importance of seeding rate. One
1: of the, one of the things that I, I do believe that's given um, some success in the, uh, the data reporting or the data that you'll see that come out of the Carrington Center on the organic is the... Uh, seeding rates. Organic agriculture tends to always use a higher seeding rate. We want to get more plants out there, more competition. Makes sense, right? That's partially why intercropping works too, a little bit you know, organic, because we have more plants out there, less chances of, of, of the weeds coming through. And so, so one of the things that we have done is we've, we, we have went with a higher seeding rate in our organic production than is typically done. And so we're we're uh, we set the benchmark at ten plants per square foot. where at you know normally it's about seven, so we're thirty percent higher. Or so <clears throat> done some preliminary seeding rate work, and actually some of the data we've used here actually shows that we might even need to be higher, because we we've done some work up to where we went up to up to five hundred thousand, which is thirteen or fourteen plants per square foot. I forget remember the exact number, and still seeing yield increases. So I think you know, plant density is very important. And that's one of the things I think has attributed to some of the success. But you know, weed control, again, is important. We can harrow those. I've done some harrowing. But I, uh, over the years, too, we've also not done any harrowing if there's not weeds there. So basically, planting date's very important, along with seeding rate. Organic agriculture, farmers sometimes will seed later to try to get the weed flush out. I don't think we want to do that with peas. The later we delay our planting, the, the lower we see yield input and, and disease pressure. So planting date's very important with these, just as it is on the conventional side, plant early, you know. Heavy seeding rates helps with weed control and other things. And again, variety choice is very important. That's why we do these variety trials, because to get, give that information to the farmer on the best choices possible on what to use, you know. And again, uh, we, we want to make sure we inoculate this crop with an approved Inoculant, anytime we're, we're working in organic agriculture, we have to make sure any products were used are called OMRI approved. That's Organic Materials Review Institute or something like that. And So, so basically, that's really important to get that product that went through that so you can use that and not compromise your certification. So making sure we inoculate that with the proper strain of bacteria is very important, too, to get that nitrogen fixation going on.
0: Overall, one theme that definitely runs through a lot of Steve's work is this idea of building resilience, building it into varieties, but also just building it into agricultural systems in general.
1: That is one of the things that um, that resilience, that, that's an interesting point to bring up there, to be able to have varieties that will be able to handle multiple conditions and be able to thrive in those. In other words, having that resilience is is a trait that actually I first heard about the organic farmers talking about that. That was the first people, twenty and thirty years ago, I heard talking about you know some of these. And and one of the one of my mentors that did refer to that on his farm, they're growing things that have stood the test of time. You know, a, a proso millet that was adapted to their their livestock feeding on their farm, but yet did well, and they've been able to plant that millet for over 40 years now on their farm, and it's still doing well. So, you know, that having those types of genetics is very important for all agriculture, of course, but particularly when your tools are limited by the amount of inputs that you can use, variety resiliency is a lot more important.
0: Well, thank you so much to Steve Zwinger for joining us on today's episode of Growing Pulse Crops. His future interests are in continuing to explore new varieties and combinations of intercrops in different environments. He told me the possibilities for this are endless. I hope you enjoyed that episode and I also hope you're a subscriber so you don't miss our next one with Dr. Steve Shirtliff. For annual weeds, if you can keep them weed free from the five node stage to the 10 node stage, if you can control weeds in that zone, you're home free that's it. You don't have to worry about the weeds that start after that. And if you control them by the five-node stage, they haven't done enough damage. So if you keep them weed-free in that period, you've done your job. So make sure you're subscribed to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast on your podcast platform of choice so you catch that upcoming episode as well. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure this information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.